Hello and welcome to another off-season edition of the Three Bid League podcast. We got a lot of off-season roster move topics to cover here. Later on, my co-host Matt and I are going to talk about some interesting transfer moves that we've had. We're going to be joined by David Korn to talk about the developments at GW, including the change to the new nickname. They are the George Washington Revolutionaries. But as always, I'm your host, Tyler, and we're going to be joined at the beginning here by the man behind the Hawk Hill Hardwood account. One of the best covering the St. Joseph's Hawks, Matt Gifford. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely, guys. Thank, thank you so much for having me on. This is great. So I figured it's a good time to talk St. Joe's because the expectations are growing for next year. And there was a big five related account the other day that put out their A-10 power rankings and had St. Joe's sitting at the number one spot. And that's when the Twitter vitriol started to turn against the feel-good Hawks. So it's probably time to uh, get this discussion going. And I want to challenge you right off the bat here. For anyone who's listening who's maybe not paying attention to the development with the St. Joe's roster, I want you to kick off here. Tell us why you would be so optimistic about a team that's basically played well for two weeks in this four-year regime. Yeah, I mean, I, I love just jumping right into the deep end. This is a great, a great start. Um, I think that, so that account is like big five centered. I think that, I think that, I don't, I don't even, even know who, who runs the account, but I think overall it does a good job. Um, and at first I know I had a couple of people reach out to me and be like, do you think it's a joke? And I was like, no, because if you go back in that timeline, a couple of months, he's actually been sort of saying this since the season ended that if St. Joe's returned everybody that he would probably think St. Joe's would be in that top tier. And obviously with some other issues and other A-10 programs with uh, some people leaving and things, it kind of helped St. Joe's to bump up. But I guess, Tyler, if you're looking for someone that maybe isn't like super tuned into the Hawks and, and wondering why there would be that level of optimism, as you said, given the fact that it was really just a couple strong weeks to end the season. Uh, and even within those weeks, Tyler, there was like a, a losing streak. So the question would become like, why then would that team, even if they do return everybody, be picked that high by some people? I'd be shocked if like the A-10 coaches picked St. Joe's number one preseason, but I would not be surprised if the A-10 coaches picked St. Joe's in the top three or the top four uh, and I think the main reason behind that, Tyler, is that backcourt, which uh, John Rothstein has tweeted about being possibly the best backcourt in the A-10. And uh, I know that there'll be some other good ones, but I think it all starts there. I think it starts with the fact that Eric Reynolds is, you guys are probably better with the entire A-10 than I am, but Eric Reynolds will probably be one of those two, three guys right in the conversation for A-10 player of the year next year. I'd imagine he'll be preseason Go. first team, no matter what it yeah. might be preseason player of the year, probably depending on who the coaches do pick first. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. So like you're talking with Eric Reynolds, I think you can pretty comfortably say like a legitimate superstar um, and a guy who has shown growth as a leader uh, uh, has shown some growth as a player, uh, learning to play both on and off the ball a little bit. And then, think Tyler a big part there too is Lynn Greer going from a guy the first half of last year that looked borderline unplayable 
to be completely honest with you. I know St. Joe's fans were kind of like, all right, got to get through this year and then you'll bring in recruits the following year and they'll take that spot. Uh, But there was a pretty dramatic turnaround with Lynn that started in that game at George Washington, uh, where he kind of went off and then sort of carried that over. So I think with Eric and Lynn Greer, you're looking at a really good backcourt. They returned Cameron Brown, who certainly could have gone elsewhere as a grad transfer. I mean, I look every day at some of these grad transfer names and their lists. Uh, Cam Brown absolutely could have transferred to like a power, power six, power five program um, in some capacity. So I think you look at those three guys as the sort of like the linchpins. And then I think you look at depth around them. Um, And then you're probably looking at a guy like a Rashir Fleming as someone who I think people will expect to make a big jump in. Uh, some of the new guys that we can go into a little bit later. I think it all starts with the backcourt if you're looking for the why. Yeah, and Lynn Greer was a guy that I actually would have put on my all-conference third team if we used this nonsensical six players a team like the conference does. And I I knew he wasn't going to make it, but the way he closed, he was clearly one of the 18 best players at the end of last year. And you talk about the talent drain from around the conference, over half of those guys are now gone. And there's some good players coming in, but now I I say this thinking that it won't happen again, but Lynn Greer probably should be a preseason all-conference guy this year. I I mean, his, what he did with his jumper from the, I mean, like it's stark, Tyler. Like you look, I think it's the games up to the St. Joe's game at home against Loyola Chicago. I think he was shooting 9% from three on like actually some volume. And then from that point through the rest of the year, he was like 42% or 41% on comparable volume. So something happened there. I guess if you're skeptical as like an A-10 fan looking at St. Joe's, like how could things go wrong? It would be if if Lynn regressed again. Um, but if he plays the way he did the second half of the year, as you said, like an all-conference level guy, Eric is a preseason candidate for player of the year then you got pieces around that and some young guys that you would hope to make a jump and like legitimate depth. Um, I think that's your argument to put them in that conversation with VCU and Duquesne and Bonaventure and maybe some other teams too. Yeah. And overall talking about Lynn Greer's improvement though, like you said, he shot the three way better at the end of the season. I'm just curious about your thoughts on St. Joe's and Billy Lang's philosophy, which I think has been a little controversial around the A-10 just because the Hawks have consistently put up just about the most threes in the league over the last four years with mixed results. Last year is one of their better shooting seasons, but overall, do you think that's going to continue to be a focal point of the offense, just having a lot of shooters around the court and putting those shots up constantly? So I think the huge thing here, Matt, and when I say that I'm in the dark on this, I I really am. Um, And I wanted to get to this later, but it ties into your question there about the three-point shooting is I don't know, you don't know, none of us really know what Chris Asendako is going to be. I mean, I've heard people that have seen him play say he's a legitimate NBA prospect, like like now at 7'1", 265, 270 pounds. Um, I think that they're going to be able to run stuff through him next year. They could not do that with Educa Ubina at all. Um, and I love Educa as a person and as a player. Um, but Creased is going to give them something totally different in terms of making a defense collapse and then being able to pass out of it as just a massive human being. So 
I, I do think that the attention he's going to draw is going to allow him to kick. And I, I really do think, I mean, if anything, I would imagine St. Joe's team next year is probably going to shoot more threes than they did this past year. Um, just the combination of the looks being a little better, the combination, Matt, of actually probably having some guys now that can shoot around that player. I mean, I think you're looking at Eric Reynolds, Lynn Greer, Cam Brown as all guys in that like 33-ish plus range. Uh, Rashir Fleming's a guy I think they have a lot of optimism for as a shooter and as a player. So yeah, agree with the controversial piece. I, I've found myself dancing back and forth on that line quite a bit. But one thing I'll say as a compliment to Billy Lang is he really doesn't care what anybody says about his philosophy or the way he plays. He's going to do it, um, even if it's unpopular and even if at times it doesn't work. Um, he came in and said that's what they were going to do, and he didn't lie. Um, so yeah, Matt, I think that they're going to keep shooting like that. I think they probably have a better shooting team than they did a year ago. Um, and I think they're going to have a big guy in there that, again, I don't know what to expect and I'm not going to say he's an NBA player because I've literally never seen him play. Um, but the reviews I've gotten from people that aren't even St. Joe's people are, are really high, um, as a passing big. So, and and we've heard the praise from Dr. John Giannini from what he has heard. And I, I, I don't want to misspeak for the coach, but I do believe he has actually gotten to see him in St. Joe's practice. So that's an opinion that we should not take lightly, but Matt, I'm really glad you brought up the shooting here because that's going to be critical. There's going to need to be a little bit of a bench scoring boost for this team to be successful. Something they haven't had the last few years. So we'll take obviously the three starting guards out of the equation because at the volume Reynolds plays at, probably capped around the 38% he was at last year. Greer, I think everyone would probably be happy if he stays in that like 33 range Absolutely. next season, given the way he started. And Cam Brown's kind of just like a career, like 36, 37% guy. But I feel like for the Billy Lang offense to really hit its stride, there's got to be a sniper coming off the bench in the 40s. So outside of those three, is there a guy on this team that you feel like can be a, a true knockdown threat that defenses really have to game plan for? I mean, I think that Eric is going to be your best shooter. Uh, the thing with him is he like he's not a sniper, right? He's a guy that's going to shoot a lot off the dribble, which makes his... I mean, I, I, when I had Brendan Quinn on the spaces and he was talking about like how in the world does St. Joe's keep Eric Reynolds, it's like his usage rate. He's, he's not going to have the ball the way he does at St. Joe's if he's at Maryland or at Georgetown or at Penn state. So um, Eric is going to be the best shooter. I think it's going to sound weird. You guys, I don't know if you have the stats in front of you. I don't. Um, I really think they're going to look <laughs> at Rashir Fleming as being a guy that is going to, he's not going to be Taylor Funk because he just offers. And I love, this isn't a knock on Taylor Funk. He offers a lot more than Taylor Funk as a player. Um, but I think their hope is going to be to get him in that 35, 36, that 37% range as well, um, Rashir, with the other things that he does. And then they've got some guys coming in. Uh, Xavier Brown's a freshman who is one of the higher regarded guys they have coming in. And he's a, he's a streaky shooter, but he really can shoot. Um, and he's going to, Tyler, I don't know if he's going to be a off the bench shooter, but he's going to be a huge off the bench scorer. 
Um, so that's going to be, I think, big for them. Uh, I think they're kind of kind of hope that it's just going to be having a lot of guys in that 33 to 37% range, as opposed to having one or two guys, upper 30s, 40, and then a bunch of guys that can't shoot at all. I think it's going to be more hoping that if you have seven or eight guys that can consistently shoot, that's what you're going to go with. And one of those guys you brought up as a hopeful good shooter was Rashir Fleming. And I feel like around the A-10, he's one of those freshmen that started to get a lot of buzzes a good breakout candidate because we saw him play much better offensively down the stretch last year and only made 22 threes last year, but 17 of them came in the final 10 games. He hit three each in the last two, a 10 tournament games. So it looked a lot more confident shooting the ball, but what do you think in particular he needs to do to reach that next level where before he was mostly just coming off the bench for parts of the season, not playing a huge role and, you would think at his size, he's going to be more important to the Hawks. Yeah. So Rashir's story is, is just really fascinating, which I could talk for a while, but I'll give you just like a quick little um, crash course um, played on, on the Camden teams with DJ Wagner and Aaron Bradshaw and um, just like a loaded team. I watched him in high school, probably like seven to 10 times. There were games he didn't score. There were games he didn't start. There were games he didn't get a field goal attempt. Um, so you're going from a guy who, as a 17-year-old high school senior, didn't really do much other than, like, defend and show, like, that ability to hedge and guard pick and rolls and stuff to a guy who I think, as an 18-year-old freshman, uh, started to get more comfortable. He never had to be, like, that guy. That was the thing, I think, Matt, with him, is he was always a fourth or fifth guy. Um so I don't think he's naturally a guy that's going to go out and be like, I'm going to score right now. Uh, I think that he's so much more talented than he believes. And I think that's the coach's big thing this offseason is being like, you could be a pro. Like, you, you're still 18. Like, you're an 18-year-old right now going into your sophomore year. Like, you could be a pro combo forward type guy at the next level if you do these things. Um, just in talking to people and seeing clips, he's already put on a lot of muscle. Um, and he wasn't a twig last year, really, as a freshman, when you think about it. I think assertiveness, Matt, is the thing. Uh, defensively, he's got all the upside, just a little bit more confidence in his jumper. And I know they're working hard on him, uh, like, as a dribble driver. Um, and they see upside for him as, like, a wing offensive player. So uh, assertiveness, I think he's probably, this sounds insane with the team with Eric Reynolds. I think he's probably the best prospect on that St. Joe's team. Um, at six nine with a seven three wingspan. So so assertiveness and uh, and just kind of tweaking that shot. So you bring up the role and the fact that Fleming was basically being called upon more than he was used to. Certainly more than I think we all expected, even in like early February. And a, a big piece of that was the injury to Eduke Obina, who's now since graduated. But this St. Joe's team is going to start off the year with basically the same top of the rotation as they had at the end of the season when they were playing well. It's three starting guards we mentioned, Fleming at center, Casper Klotschek, whose name I do not think has been said yet, Oh, and then no. Christian Winborn coming off the bench. And that was a group that got some wins at the end of the season. Not a group that has a huge track record of success like we talked about at the beginning. So I'm wondering... Before season's end, is there 
a freshman in this uber talented class that you see as breaking through and jumping one or maybe multiple of those guys in the rotation? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of just go what my guess here, Tyler, would be starting lineup is going to be those three guards, Rashir Fleming at the four and Chris Esendako at center with uh, Katzper, probably your first big guy off the bench, Christian Winborn, your first guard off the bench. And then you are talking about a guy, another guy we haven't mentioned so far in Sean Simmons, who was a top hundred recruit who redshirted all second semester last year, who's going to be one of the top couple athletes in the A-10. He's not fully there as a player, um, but you're talking about from a defensive and like f- high flying standpoint, an elite, elite athlete um, who will play. And that second semester last year was huge for him. I don't think he'll start uh, Xavier Brown most years in the last 15 at St. Joe's that I've covered the team. He'd probably start as a freshman, but he's not starting over Eric Reynolds and Lynn Greer. Um, so I think that Xavier will play as a freshman. Sean Simmons will play as a freshman. Uh, kind of your question then becomes like, does your Haskins, who's another Camden guy, where does he fit in? I don't know yet. Um, and then Anthony Finkley is our other freshman who probably projects below those guys. Although I think has a future, uh, it's going to be a really deep team, but my guess on those starting five, Tyler, is that with Christian and Katzburr, and then Sean Simmons and Xavier Brown as those next kind of four guys. And a lot, this is the biggest offseason in Christian Winboard's life. Um, he's got to make a jump, and I think he can. But if he if he doesn't improve as a shooter this offseason, then some guys might jump him. Yeah, and that's the reason why I asked that question is exactly what you're saying about Winborn. And I think you could probably apply it to about half of the guys in the rotation. I mean, really, the only guys that we know for certain or sure thing quality above average starters are Reynolds and Cam Brown. They've yep. done that on a consistent basis, but maybe Greer had some lightning in the bottle. Maybe he is the awesome guy we saw in February. And you can say that about a lot of these guys, but I feel like if St. Joe's hits their ceiling, it's in a universe where one of these freshmen is definitely starting. And at least one other is a significant contributor off the bench. And you know, as we've learned, you bring in three really hyped freshmen, probably one of them's not going to be ready yet. So if you can get hit on two out of those three, and then either Winborn takes a step up or one of those two kind of back half of the class freshmen turns out to be better than they look right now. Now I, I, I would start to seriously think about this team as a real contender. Yeah, and I think it's the roles here, Tyler. I think it's like what we've said, you need to hit on other guys. Um, I mean, the worst I've heard anyone say about Creased, the like the most critical person I've heard is that he's better than Educate. That's like the person that was the most down on him. So like, I mean, Educate had his flaws in terms of hands and passing and some other things, but like physically he was an A-10 player and he went out there, he rebounded, right? He defended. Um, so I don't, I'm not even including him in the freshman thing. I don't think you guys are either. Like, I think he's going to be a real deal like a 10 starting level guy um but yeah lynn greer you don't know what it's going to be rashir fleming i think has all the upside in the world but is he a guy that can consistently go out and be a 10 point per game and six to eight rebound per game guy i have no idea like he might not be um it might still be upside and then 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're looking, Tyler. Sean Simmons will play as a wing defender. I think he was going to start if Cam Brown left. Um, and the thing to Billy's credit and the staff's credit is the team really likes one another. Uh, this isn't a case where Sean Simmons came in redshirted under the guise of Cam Brown leaving and is now like pissed off because he thought he was going to start. Um, I know Sean is excited that Cam's back, even though that was his starting role. Um, and then Xavier Brown's a guy I think that, again, as I said, 15, four, probably 14 out of the last 15 years starts as a true freshman. Um, this is just not that year. He's got to get stronger. He's about 160, 165 pounds. Um, I don't really know of a great comp for him from a A10 standpoint or a St. Joe standpoint, but people, if you guys remember, it's going back like a decade now, but like there was a guy at St. Joe's named Tay Jones who was smaller than Brown, but like really fast and change of direction guy. That would be a decent comp um, for Brown. So, but yeah, these guys are going to have to play and they're going to have to hit and depth is going to have to be big. So to give people an idea of the real talent level and the depth on this roster that you're trying to talk about. Is there a single St. Joe's player between James Demery as a sophomore on the really good 2016 team? And now is there a single guy who came off the bench for any of those six teams that would play at all this season? You're talking about one of my favorite players of all time and James Demery too, which is, I love, um, like he's the last good bench player St. Joe's has had. I mean, so we're going back to that 2016 team. So that you're talking the team with like, so it's the last three Martelli teams in the entire Billy Lang era. Like this team basically has not had quality depth in seven years. No, I mean, your first two years of the Billy Lang era, you had guys that were not division one players that were playing. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question. I'm trying to like rack my brain back to names, but I, I guess the issue becomes what's unproven um, and what's theoretical. And like, really, at this point, Sean Simmons is theoretical. Um, these freshmen outside of Crease, I think, are. But I mean, depth wise, I mean, if you're talking about like Casper Klotzik possibly being like a seventh man. There are St. Joe's teams in the last six, seven years where he would have been like the third best player. He kind of was for was like a month and a half last season. Yep. Until, has, until Greer took I, off. I mean, he had that really freak bad facial injury that never really got discussed. And I'm not going to be the one to discuss it. Um, but he was really hurt freshman year. Like I heard that that was a very gruesome and bad injury that he suffered. Um, that made him miss like the last couple months of his freshman year. And then he had an illness this year. He's had some other injuries. He's got to be healthy. And both of those things were out of his control, the, the facial injury and the illness. Um, but you're right. Like he showed promise as a shooter last year uh, in stretches. Like there were games, I feel like there was a game against GW. There were a couple other games where he really shot the ball well. Um, but consistency for him, like is he a seventh man or is he a legitimate good a 10 starter i don't know but yeah to answer your question overall i think that i mean you have to go outside of ryan daly uh i guess in jordan hall you've got to go back quite some time to have someone that kind of would have been a guy that i think would start on this team 
I think so, like Jordan, Jordan and Ryan are it. So, so for the Hawks this year, coming off the most successful of the last four or five years, for sure, I would say. But not not a team without its flaws. And I'm just curious, with this being such an important offseason, what would you say was St. Joe's biggest weakness last year? And do you think they did an adequate job filling any holes with the incoming freshman class? That's a great question, Matt. I think that this team is still flawed. I think it was alluded to earlier about having that shooter. Um, I think in a perfect world, they would have added a guy. I think, Matt, the thing that's that's really hard, though, as we're talking about depth, is in that transfer portal, who are you going to add that's realistic, that's going to come to a team that when you look at it, again, fully aware that a lot of this is like hypothetical, theoretical, like nothing outside of a couple guys is concrete. But like, are you in the portal going to add a guy that's definitely better than Christian Winborn. I, I don't know. Cause like, is that guy coming to St. Joe's? Are you going to add a guy that's better than like Rashir Fleming or Casper Klotzik? I don't know. Um, a shooter would have been awesome. And that's the one thing. And I'm actually not even putting it outside of the realm of possibility that they'll still add somebody. I mean, I heard as recently as a couple of weeks ago that they're still active in the portal looking. Um, I think it has to be a perfect fit. Um, and it probably would be a shooter. Uh, or it would be like a backup big man uh, that would play behind a couple guys. But I think that this team just needed, I think the chemistry is there. I think the guys like each other. I don't know if either of you saw the, um, where were there or saw or whatever, like the press conference after they lost that game to Dayton. Um, I think there was a level of sincerity and a level of that, that actually hit me just as someone that covers the team um, hard to see that. Like, I, I feel like at times over the last couple of years, since Billy's been there at times, like, yeah, they weren't good, but also it felt like winning was almost kind of not the objective. It was kind of like a byproduct. Uh, I don't know if that's something you guys have discussed or also seen as like non St. Joe's people. It's kind of like, almost like, well, they're focused on this process, but like at some point you got to win basketball games. Um, Like that's the job. Uh, And seeing like Lynn crying and seeing Eric upset um, showed me that they care. There's a desire to win there now. Um, I, I think it this year really, Matt, in terms of what's missing, maybe shooting. Uh, and then the question will just become how good is Crease? Uh, and to me, and I, granted, I'm probably a little more bullish on them than you. That's kind of going to be the question. Like if he's like pretty good, then maybe this is a team that can finish top four or five and like maybe compete for like a CBI type of thing. But if he's as good as Dr. G has said, and I've had other people saying things along the lines of like, NBA future could be one of the best guys in the A10 right away as a, in the front court. Um, then maybe you're talking that top two or three in the A10, and maybe you're talking that possibly bubble-ish, maybe type of scenario. So I mean, to me, a lot hinges on him uh, and just how good he is, and yeah. and the shooting is it going to be consistent? I do want to take it back to your transfer comment there for a second because. I think this is something that Dayton probably ran into last offseason trying to improve their roster with a veteran. When you have three established veteran starting guards, it's hard to sell a transfer to come in when they know, like, yeah, there's probably not more than maybe 20 minutes a game 
left to take. And if they do land a guy at this point, I think it would be someone like a, a David Shriver type going to VCU. He committed there late last year. Someone from a smaller conference who might be more of a specialist who's willing to say, yeah, I'll, I'm comfortable playing 12 to 15 minutes a game at this higher level. That's not an issue because there's just not much time to go around. That's the, that's the downside of having all this talent. Yeah, and as you like, as you guys are well are covering the A ten, like this isn't getting a guy at I'm not even going to use like a blue blood, but this isn't like getting a guy at Seton Hall or at Georgia Tech or something and being like, yeah, come in play twelve to fifty. Like you're trying to convince a guy to come to St. Joe's to play twelve to fifteen minutes a game, like an A ten school that has not had a ton of success recently. So, like selling that without minutes is a challenge. Um, and I think they'll try. And I think if the right kind of guy pops up on like maybe like a one year deal, um, then maybe you go with it. But uh, overall, I think they're probably more likely than not to go into the year with this roster. So I, I want to take it back to the weakness question here, because I almost chuckled when it got asked, because to me, you didn't pick what I would have thought is the obvious answer. Like, well, I mean, there, defense would be yeah. my other. There were times in December, January, where it felt like if they played the wrong group of middle schoolers, they might give up 75. Yeah, defense is, yeah, I mean, I was thinking offensive side of ball. Defense is very valid. Yeah, and now one of the big things is because Obina carried them at the end of January defensively. They lost him at the end of the year, and they were respectable on that end when they were playing well to close out the season. And it was a lot of just guys kind of all around the court, all getting marginally better. And who knows why, but a lot of these guys look better on that end. But the biggest thing that this team's going to run into is none of their returning top six are someone that you look at as an all defensive team candidate. There's no true stopper on this team. And I asked Hoops Whites this question too, and I'm going to ask it to any St. Joe's related person we talk to between now and October. Are any of these young guys going to come in and be the kind of defensive leader that this team is going to have to have. So Sean Simmons was one of the, and like from Adam Finkelstein on down guys that like cover recruiting that actually know what they're talking about and aren't just out there, like giving a list of schools that's recruiting a guy, but like a guy like Adam Finkelstein um, knows what he's doing. Uh, And he called Sean Simmons, one of the best wing defenders nationally um, in his class. Uh, I think that he's going to be a guy that you're looking at as high energy, high motor perimeter stopper uh, in a big way. Xavier Brown's offense is is significantly ahead of his defense. Um, So for him, you're looking at the offensive side of things. Uh, I think you're going to look at Christian Winborn, whose defense really was good all year. Um, His was the offense that was the issue. Um, I think with Christian, if you can get his offense to the point where you can play him longer, the defense is there. Um, there were games last year, large chunks of the season. Actually, I thought Christian was their best perimeter defender. Um, Cam Brown's not an above average defender. Um, I wouldn't say that Lynn or Eric, I, I'd say Lynn is a pretty good defender just because he's so strong um, and will like bully. So I think that's his strength. Eric just has to exert himself so much offensively that I don't know what he has to give. I think he's probably better defensively than he looks. At times, uh, I think Sean Simmons is the answer to your question, though, Tyler. I think Sean Simmons is going to be the wing defender they need. And then um, Rashir Fleming, I think, can be a plus, def- like a plus plus defender. And then 
can Kreese get up and down the floor with the rest of these guys where he can be a defensive presence? Um, Educate at times, I think from a pace standpoint, they had to slow things down a little bit uh, just because of his foot speed. Creased uh, is enormous. I know he's lost weight, but like when you look at the St. Joe's roster, I think he's listed at 7'1", 285. Um, so I think you're going to hope to get him down to like the 260s and hope that he can run the floor. Um, but again, I've heard with him as well, footwork, hands, rim protection are there. Uh, but yeah. Sean, Simmons, Sean Simmons is the answer to your question. Um, and it's going to be a lot of his minutes are going to come from his defense. Uh, and I think that that's kind of going to be his calling card. Uh, I've heard great things about him defensively, and I've, I've watched him the last couple of years because he's from this area. Um, he's going to be a switchable, high-level, seven-foot-plus wingspan perimeter defender guy. And, I, I mean, I think between Simmons and Fleming, it sounds like Sanchez will have as much length as anybody defending out on the wing, but... You know, in addition to St. Joe's, I, I always like bringing this up with anybody we talk to about Philadelphia basketball, but the Big Five, one of the best traditions in the sport, going through some changes this year. I'm just curious to get your perspective on the new format, just what your thoughts are compared to how it's been done for so many years and what you think it will do for St. Joe's. It's a good question. And yeah, I think Hoops talked about that with you guys as well. I'm obviously older than you guys, but younger than Hoops. So I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of like in a slightly different, uh, I'm almost 40. Um, the big five when I was at St. Joe's was awesome. Um, I mean, keeping in mind, I was at St. Joe's when Jameer Nelson was there and the years after him uh, with teams with like Pat Carroll and teams that were like really good St. Joe's teams. Temple was really good. Villanova was really good. Uh, Penn was often really good. Uh, LaSalle had a stretch where they were really good. Um, I think the big five needed to change just for the sake of changing uh, because we're in a different era and what was happening wasn't working. Uh, But a lot of it's going to come down to like the teams. And, And I know Hoops kind of alluded to the same thing and he's a lot smarter than I am, but if St. Joe's LaSalle and Temple are like at best average, it you can be as clever as you want with marketing. Nobody's going to really care. Um, I do think, and this is a, a weird take to you guys, possibly Temple leaving the A-10, I think actually may have altered the way people look at the big five a little bit. Like Temple is in Philadelphia. I, people that I know that are St. Joe's people or, or Nova people or LaSalle people don't really like, I don't want to say hate, but like they don't hate Temple the way they used to. It's almost like Temple's like in a different category now, just because like they're in that weird conference recruiting, especially now with Adam Fisher. I'm curious to see what happens, but like the rosters for a stretch there weren't super local kids. It, it felt weird. Um, and Villanova was just so good. Uh, that it wasn't like a contest. Like every eight, every big five team is going into those games against Villanova saying, we're going to lose this one, but let's see if we can compete against one another. Um, I don't love the Wells Fargo piece for the games because I think that could look really bad on TV. Um, and in general, if it's, if there's 4,000 people there. Um, but I, I, I think Matt that they needed to do something. And if this doesn't work, 
then they do something else. Uh, like they're not locked into this for a decade or anything. Just like give this a shot. In theory, St. Joe's is better this year. Um, I have no idea what to expect with Temple. Um, no idea what to expect with LaSalle. Yeah, um, no, one, no one knows. I mean, I don't even really know what LaSalle's roster looks like right now. You guys would have more insight into that than I, but... Yeah, and we still really don't either. Yeah, I mean, there will probably be a couple, like, European guys that I've never heard of that will commit in the next little bit, or... And, they'll, and probably Fran will have them being awesome, but... Um, yeah, I, I, I like, Matt, that they change something. It sounds old manish to me to say I wish it was at the Palestra, because I'm not even one of these guys that, like, loves, loves the Palestra. Um, but I feel like that has a better that would have had a better chance of being an electric atmosphere than wells fargo but maybe the kids want to play at wells fargo i don't know maybe they gave them more money but something had to get done uh, because otherwise it was going to die so shameless plug here for anyone who hasn't listened yet be sure to go back listen to our last episode with hoops weiss we go super crazy in depth on the big five and so for the non-philly people who probably don't want to hear this again i will mercifully not make them continue on uh, listening to it. I want to close it out here. Yeah. So it's year five of the Billy Lang era. Safe to say years one through four did not go great. And the end of the Phil Martelli era didn't go great. It's been a while since St. Joe's has had a really good team, but we take the deck. If we take this century as a whole, still clearly in the top four, of the A 10 in terms of successes, if not, maybe even one or two for what they did early in the Martelli years. Mm-hmm. So for you personally, or for some of the St. Joe's fans whose opinions you trust the best, what constitutes a successful season here, given how rough the last few years have been offset by the fact that this is an extremely talented roster? Yeah. So before I even answer that question, I'm going to, this is going to seem like hyperbolic not maybe in the way that you expect, like not rah-rah sunshine type of thing. Um, was talking to a couple of friends the other day and I was like, guys, yell at me if I'm being overdramatic. Um, and, and they ended up not yelling at me. Um, to me, this, this season coming up is going to be the year that's going to really determine the next eight to 10 years at St. Joe's. Uh, and I, I'm actually not, I'm not a dramatic person. You guys don't really, I'm not saying that dramatically. Um, but like St. Joe's needs to get this year right uh, because if this year goes right with the younger players they have and the guys that they're looking at and the fact that people do like Billy, like players do like him um, a lot. Uh, he's like a charismatic guy. Like this could take off in a good direction um, and continue to build, right? Like build the way he's envisioned. If the season does not go well, then it can all fall apart. And then are you looking at another rebuild uh, in a year or in two years or this year, I don't know the answer to that. Um, So that's my first thing. Like this is the biggest year in a really long time. And I think that this year will chart the course for the next six, eight, whatever years. Um, To your question though, what constitutes success? I'll say a double buy. I'll say this team needs to be in the top four. Uh, I'm not going to say they need to be number one because I don't think that that's, I do think that they might be the most talented team. Like that part, I don't disagree with. Like, if Creased is this guy, they might be the most talented team. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with like Jaron Holmes, right? I don't think you guys do. Maybe I missed something, um, but we don't know. We got a few days to find out. Yeah. 
Um, and like, we don't really know what's going to happen with VCU bringing in all the transfers they did. Um, that's going to be really fun to watch. Um, but I'm going to say top four, Tyler. I think they need to be. Um, I'm not going to give a win total because I don't know how relevant like the difference between 21 wins and 19 wins or 22 wins and 20 wins really is. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's like a double buy. I, I really do believe that. I think they need to be a top four team. Um, I think they need to be not playing in games against other teams in the top four that they're getting blown out of at home. Uh, you can't be down 20 something to do Kane at home like they were last year. And then at the road, like they can't have these games where they clearly look out coached and out hustled. Um, so I, I guess that's going to be my response is top four being playing like meaningful regular season games to stay in that top four or compete for a conference regular season championship. Um, I think some form of postseason, uh, not necessarily NCAA, but like NIT, CBA, like something that shows that you've grown. Um, to me, that's it. Like a team that's top four, a team that's competing for a postseason, a team that is not getting blown out by other teams at the top of the conference. Um, I'm not going to say like they have to be a tournament team because I don't think that's fair. I'm not going to say I think they need to be top two because I don't know if that's going to happen, but this team can't finish like seventh in the conference and be like 17 and 15. I, I think that would be bad. I mean, I think that would have some repercussions. All right. That was the most optimistic, like three minutes of St. Joe's talk that I think we've had since our first ever episode when I may or may not have picked them to win the league and what ended up being the season that got Phil Martelli fired. So there is reason to believe in St. Joe's. Now the Hawk did not die throughout this and maybe he can cheerily flap his wings again soon. To be totally fair, when I'm projecting that they need to be top four, I believe that's also a bit of an indictment on the conference in addition to everything else. We're not going to talk about that. You yet. don't need to tell us that. I'm going to wait till July to officially declare whether or not, not this conference stinks again. Doomed. I'm not not saying the conference is doomed, but I'm not saying it's doomed. I'm just saying like the A10 of five years ago, I would not have said this. St. Joe's team has to be top four, but in this A10, they need to be top four or top well, three. I think that's a good point you bring up as we finish up. Like St. Joe's is bringing back pretty much their whole rotation. On paper, the A10 isn't looking that bad. And you were speaking about how this is the most important year St. Joe's has had in a while. And I think I agree because if St. Joe's can't win a lot of games this year, when are they? That's it just seems like a lot of factors are lining up to favor the Hawks. One way or another, it's going to be a fun season. It's going to be an interesting <laughs> cover and for you guys to talk about. By the way, this is the most important season for three programs coming up, and that's going to be really interesting. But who else? Duquesne, without a doubt. Yeah. And I, honestly, I kind of think it is for Fordham. Because they might not be quite as good as last year, but they built all that momentum. And I think they need to, even if they're not quite as good as last season, they still got to be good to keep the buzz there. And so that Ergo can continue to recruit at the level he has. Like, that's a team that's got to finish at worst, like fifth or sixth this season with what they bring back. 
that's also, and I want to go, we're going to end, but I bet. So as I look at all these teams, Fordham is actually the team that I see the largest like variation. And like, I could see them being a top four team, but I don't know. Uh, I, I hope they are. Cause like Fordham being good would be good for everybody. Yeah. And even if they're like 10 and eight, I think that's enough to continue to build the momentum for them. So we shall see, but fun. Matt, thank you for joining us talking St. Joe's. Where can everyone find you continuing to talk St. Joe's throughout the summer? Yeah, for sure. So I, uh, my Twitter account is at HH Hardwood or Hawk Hill Hardwood. And then my, my writing and my coverage is all through the 24 seven sports network. Um, and the website is just hawkhillhardwood.com. Uh, it's a St. Joe's team site through CBS Sports and 24-7 Sports. So that's where all the writing is. All my other stuff's on the Twitter account. All right, everyone, be sure to go give the Hawk Hill Hardwood a follow. All right, we're now joined by David Korn from A10 Talk. We're going to talk about the new GW team name, the Revolutionaries. David, such a far leap to go from Colonials to Revolutionaries. I feel like they can keep all the old jerseys, logos, mascot costumes, everything. So I think that was always the plan. Thank you guys, first of all, for having me. I really appreciate uh, the invite on the 3-Bit League pod. But I mean, I think that was always the plan to keep the same sort of vibe, to keep it um, like George was always going to be the mascot. You know, the colors are going to stay the same, you know, all of that. The thing that really bugs me about the name change, like you said, about how similar it is, is the just the the time and resources that the university invested into the search process just to come up with the name that everybody had already figured out on their own would be a good fit. So that's sort of my biggest takeaway right now is that it seems like this whole, they made such a big deal out of this process. Like I'm sure you saw on Twitter, like the moniker madness, you know, like everybody in the sports world and just like the world world having their opinions on what it was, you know, thought it was going to be, be a big deal. And then they choose probably the most vanilla option. And so that it's, it's fine. I mean, I think the revolutionaries will work, but that's kind of just where I'm feeling, what I'm feeling right now about this whole process is that it just kind of seemed like a waste of time if they just ended up with that. I mean, it was basically just the politically acceptable version of colonials. Like it's, you're kind of coming from the same people. Maybe, maybe it's a few decades later, but it's, it's basically the same thing. Like, like you said, the mascot's still going to be able to just be George. So it was going to be George no matter what. I don't think they were not getting rid of that. Even if it was Blue Fog, it would have been like a... It still would have been like the mascot is George. It still would have been like George Washington University. But it's just the moniker. The team names would have been known as the Blue Fog. And so it was always going to be George. It was always still going to have the same general vibes. It was just a name change. So I think that... Really, at this point, especially because it's revolutionaries, not much is going to change. Um, it's a really interesting process, you know, just figuring out how I, I would love to get more of an insight on how they came up with it. But yeah, no, it's it's going to be revolutionaries. <laughs> so I wonder if it is going to be revolutionaries, because my question is, how long does it take for this to get shortened to revs? Like there's. We're going to have about 370 Division One teams next year. I'd have to do some homework, but I have to imagine Revolutionaries is up there leading the nation in syllables. That's a mouthful for announcers to say for fans. 
I think it's going to be Revs within five games. Yeah, so I believe that George Washington Revolutionaries altogether is the longest, has the is the full name with the most amount of syllables for any D1 school. So I, I you're spot on with that take. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I got out of there just in time with my uh, with my <laughs> broadcasting. So I, I wish all the my WRGW friends the best of luck there and figuring out how, how best to utilize that. But I definitely think it'll be reps. And just like uh, practically, I think it'll be tough to get on a jersey. Like basketball jerseys, there isn't a lot of space. Like, I don't know if you know, like the like the Jared Saltalamacchia meet where Saltalamacchia, great, great throwback baseball player. But the name sort of like goes in like a U, an upside down U on his back. And because it can't fit in a straight line. So people were joking that it would look something like that. So I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be like, but I, I, I think it'll be cool. I, I think it's, it's exciting that there's going to be a chance for a rebrand. I feel like some of the GW, it, it'll, be inter- it'll be fun for there to be some excitement surrounding GW, even if regardless of the actual on-court product or on-field product for whatever sport you're thinking of. Yeah, and quick timeout on what you just said there, Matt. Uh, a quick check. George Washington Revolutionaries, 31 letters. That is one more than the only one I could think of being close. 30 letters for the Ohio State University Buckeyes. Isn't it the George Washington University, though? Can we add on three to that? I mean, yeah, it's the, but I, it's it's not like... You guys I don't, don't make it as big think, of a deal. I don't think that's their like, God-given name that. like it is for the Buckeyes. No, we never use the. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, we we don't need to have more schools doing that. So I I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, but to bring it back here, David, did you feel like this is where this was always going? Because from afar, it seemed like on Twitter, they were almost angling for it to be blue fog and just trying to prepare people for just how dumb that was going to sound. Because that was definitely worse than where they ended up. I I think a lot of people disagree with you, Tyler. I mean, the the students on campus really liked Blue Fog. It was a student that that idea came from the students. Um, I'm I'm friends with the group of people who sort of where that originated. Um, it it had gained a lot of traction, and it was not a joke. People were really enjoying it. I know for a fact a lot of the people involved in GW athletics really liked it. Um, in every interview I did, basically February on, I would always ask whoever I was talking to what their favorite moniker option was, because I was like such a big deal on campus. And James Bishop, Brendan Adams, and then the head coach of the women's basketball team, Coach Caroline McCombs, all liked Blue Fog as their favorite. So it was not a, like a, a joke option like some of the other ones that maybe made a final list here or there. <coughs> Truth, <coughs> squad. But the... Uh, People were ready. I, I had heard reports. I, 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 I don't know how accurate they were necessarily looking back, but people in athletics seriously thought that it might be Blue Fog. And I, I think that's that what I thought it was going to be too. It would have been unique, to say the least. And it also doesn't sound completely ridiculous. Like, what would your reaction have been if your school picked something like the George Washington squad? Would you even, 
I mean, I, I know you'd still support the team, but what would the reaction have been if something like that occurred? It was the squad. Oh my God. I mean, my theory about that, um, and I think a lot of people on campus believe that too, is that that was never going to be seriously considered and that it may have just been there to to fill out to when they came out with like the, the list of 10, maybe I think they might've been stuck at eight and needed a few to get to a nice round number. So I, I don't think that was seriously an option, but if they did go, if they did go in some crazy direction and did go like squad or truth or like, I think the fireworks were one of them, like that would have been weird. I mean, I don't think it would have much impact on like the student experience, but I just think it would have, it would have hurt the reputation like nationally. I think if they went in a direction like that, because again, I think like revolutionary is fine. I don't think that's going to make anyone super excited. I don't think anyone's super upset, but like blue fog, people would have really enjoyed that. There's a lot of stuff like the student section could have done. Um, it's, it would have been kind of similar to like Tulane with the green wave. Blue Fog is similar to that. Um, like Sentinels, I think, could have worked. Ambassadors would have been fine. But if they really went sort of with one of the more out there options, the, that would have been, again, I don't think it has a huge impact on any day-to-day, but it would have been a tough look. So the 15 that they apparently presented to students early on, Ambassadors, Blue Fog, Fireworks, Independence, Monumentals, which I'm convinced is actually the worst of all these, Revolutionaries, Sentinels, Fog, Fog Riders, Fog Hoppers, Cavalry, Firecrackers, The Buzz, and Independence. And they later added Catalysts, Squad, and Truth. So Squad and Truth were not part of the initial discussion, but were on the first public list. Yeah, so that initial list um, was just one that was uh, discussed in a focus group that some guy leaked because he was upset with how the process was going. So I think I don't think he technically broke an NDA, but the school was not happy with that. So those were not supposed to get out there initially. The first list that was supposed to be made to the public was the 10 that were part of like moniker madness or whatever. And so uh, I don't know how much validity there is in some of those like fog hoppers or buzz or something like that. But yeah, I mean, it seems like they did their homework. Again, I just think it's kind of lame that they did all this work just to end up back at revolutionaries, which is kind of what everyone thought it would be at the beginning of the day. I think the one way they could have gone super creative here is you do go blue fog, but you have to really nail the logo there. And I think you kind of embrace because I I assume blue fog is supposed to be, oh, GW's blue. You're in foggy bottom. Like it's supposed to be some sort of merge of that. I think you pretend to rewrite history here that that is what was in the air when Washington crossed the Delaware that he was trapped amidst the blue fog as opposed to like whatever haze it was described that he was in. And your logo would have had to be something like that. Like him on the boat with a, with waves of blue floating around him. Yeah. So I forget, I don't think it was when he was crossing the Delaware, but there is a historical account of George Washington when he was acting as a general using what people described as fog to his advantage in some battle. So there, there is that historical precedence, you're right, but another angle that GW is using is that FOG is an acronym for Friends of George, which is 
something they're trying to push. So that's the name of like the uh, the NIL collective. Um, I think that's sort of they're trying to go away from like the historical angle a little. So it's like friends of George, like this is wholesome and nice. And so there was an acronym for that. So that was part of the justification they were using in sort of having Blue Fog be a finalist. Blue Fog also would have given GW the chance to just upstage LaSalle with an even better smoke machine and get get some Blue Fog all over the court leading up to the game. Yeah, so this is going to be a... This is I'm, I'm putting on my tinfoil hat right here. One of the reasons why I thought it might be Blue Fog is that a lot of the... Uh, you know when uh, high schoolers like uh, come visit on campus and they do those like photo shoots in the gym with like wearing the jerseys, you know, with all the coaches? There were a few for GW where there was a fog machine, like a smoke machine, and that was new. So I thought, oh, my God, they like already invested, you know, they're getting ready. Like, is this a sign? So I had kind of been reading into that a little, but uh, yeah, that would have been a bummer for LaSalle. They would have caught kind of a they, they would have caught a, an unnecessary ricochet there if we just upstaged their smoke machine. So I'll, I'll clear the mic here in a second for you to give your final thoughts, but the one thing I really wish would have happened in this is that they did what Washington did, taking the one year in between Redskins and Commanders, where we all just got to call them by whatever stupid name we wanted. Last year, they should have just been George Washington University. So for the full year, we could have referred to them as the Fighting Paleos. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think Ryan would have loved that, but... um Actually, interestingly enough, at uh, WRGW, uh, as sports director, I made an executive decision that in our writing and broadcasting, we would not be using Colonials. And so we basically did refer to them as just the George Washington basketball team. And so a lot of people were doing that. That's kind of, they had been inching away from using that in basically anything other than official reports. And so people were kind of doing that already. And so I agree. I think it would have been fun if they made it official because I or done something stupid, like do some European soccer vibes and just do like BC, like basketball club or like FC football club or something like that. Just go crazy and do something like that that had never been seen at the collegiate level. But I mean, schools had done that, too. I think uh, the University of North Dakota one year, uh, they, I think, had an insensitive name. And for a few years, I think the NCAA might have made them just be North Dakota and strip them of a mascot. And so there was precedent to do that if they just wanted to be just George Washington. But again, because I don't think they were being forced to ch- forced to change it. I think they just wanted a transition. But it would have been cool. I agree. Yeah, North Dakota was in the whole insensitive Native American nickname group. Yeah. But you guys could have just been the George Washington Caputo's army. Maybe that's what he wanted all along. He wouldn't. He would never endorse a name. He did endorse a name. He Oh, he did it for you guys. He wouldn't do it for us. He um he said he wanted it to be the president's, but they didn't listen to him. So I he didn't really get a, a say. He wouldn't say anything other than that. So it was none none on the official list. All right. Before we go on to the guys who are gonna be wearing the Revs jerseys next year, any final thoughts from you on this this whole process? I think that people got way too upset about something that has absolutely no impact on really any part of anyone's lives. This is such a small thing. It's something fun, you know, but this will have no impact on the on-court product. If you're a basketball fan, it will have 
no impact other than a potentially positive impact on your student experience because you might not feel offended to go to a university that is called that has the colonial moniker so you might feel better about that so that's only a good thing and it it really is just such a, a small detail that has been changed in the grand scheme of being either a student student athlete fan alumni whatever it is of george washington so I think people were getting a little too involved, a little too emotional about this decision when it really is not something I think that was worth getting worked up about. So it was interesting to see how much people cared. I mean, I know whenever I, whenever there is an update, I would gain like 50 Twitter followers. Um, a congressman retweeted me, a sitting congressman. That was cool. So uh, people did care, but I, I just think that people need to realize how small of an impact this actually will have and just kind of touch grass. <laughs> okay, and people need to figure out right now if they should feel that that's cool or lame. So which congressman was it? Um, he went to GW. I forget his name. Let me get it right right now. I can find it. I think it was uh, Jared Moskowitz from Florida. All right, so everyone be either enraged or think that that was awesome. He didn't. I, uh, I actually, I actually don't even know who that guy is. He didn't. Uh, he didn't give a take. He just was like crazy. Like he, he, he just sort of commented on the situation. Didn't weigh in on it. All right, that that's the best way to end to end that part here. So we'll we'll carry it on to the actual basketball for next year. GW is bringing in a roster that at the moment because they still have a few open scholarships has played a total of 156 career Division I basketball games. 61% of those games played belong to James Bishop. And Maximus Edwards, who we all remember as a true freshman last year, is Fred second Turner. on the team in career games played. Well, first year of actually playing games. At this point, redshirt freshman could also mean that you have your COVID year and you've played twice. This but yes, you are correct. Like what St. Louis classifies their guys as. Yeah, exactly. So you got six freshmen coming in. You got an Oklahoma transfer with three years of eligibility left in Benny Schroeder. We talked about him a tiny bit on one of our early episodes. And then it's Bishop Edwards and the probably forgotten after his midseason injury, the lanky center Keegan Harvey. So Give us a breakdown on just one or two of these young guys that I assume most of our listeners and in terms of some of these guys, even the two of us have never heard of. Well, first of all, I'm going to start out by addressing GW's roster by quoting uh, the great Shirley Donovan. Uh, Sometimes the best gets are the ones you already have. Returning James Bishop was, I think, the most impactful get, you know, player personnel to move for any A-10 team this year. And he just having him back with the way the A-10 is looking right now gives GW a top four ceiling. Having him for his fifth year makes really, really gives this team the opportunity to go on a run. I'm not saying they will, but I'm saying James Bishop was, in my opinion, the most impactful return, trans, uh, transfer, not transfer, whatever. His coming back is so big. The two guys I want to focus on, you touched on Benny Schroeder. I'll talk about him in a second. But the first guy I want to talk about is Zemeku Waluche Ume, the true freshman coming by way of the British Basketball League in the London Lions. 
He is 6'8", can play, can guard one through five, should be getting some small ball five and four minutes for GW. He describes describes himself as a perimeter-oriented 3 and D guy. And he, I think by the time he is a senior and by the time he's made his way through GW, he's an upperclassman, I think he will be one of the most impactful, I don't want to say stars, but I think role players in the Atlantic 10. This dude has an NBA body. He has is a willing shooter. Um, his highlight reels, which is limited, but he's thrown down some highlight, highlight dunks. And a really underrated part of his development and what I think will be his transition to the United States is that he played in a top flight professional league for the top team in the British Basketball League next to some legitimate NBA players. On his team were guys like Sam Decker, Costa Kufis, Mai Oni. These were like NBA guys. These weren't, these aren't scrubs. Like he was in practice going up against these guys. So people, I'm not able to get a huge read on what like the level of talent he was playing against necessarily was in the British Basketball League. Um, I don't think it's a top 10 league in the world. Um, you know, I, I think the D1 will definitely be a step up from the overall competition there, but he should be. I think he'll be a really, really interesting prospect. And again, I don't know how much he's going to contribute year one, but in a few years from now, I really think he could be a guy who's making all defensive teams, you know, pushing for an all-conference team. And he's a really just could could develop into a really excellent player. Yeah, and I certainly always like guys who have some professional experience. He didn't play much, but he was clearly believed to be worth a developmental roster spot for a team that, if I remember correctly, I, I looked this up a few weeks ago. I believe they went 31 and three in their domestic games this year. So a, an absolutely dominant team that felt like he might be worth something for them down the road. Yeah, he was the best. He was the youngest player on the best team in the British Basketball League. And so the fact that he was really getting any minutes at all competing with these NBA guys like I like Sam Decker, that's a. He was in the NBA for a while. He was an absolute stud at Wisconsin. So he he's rubbing shoulders with guys like them, you know, in practice, and he's still finding ways to get on the court. Really impressive. All right. So you want you also wanted to touch on Benny Schroeder, a guy that we've talked about a little bit, coming over from Oklahoma. A fellow Euro guy. This is this is the year of A10 Euro recruits. That's something I want to dive into uh later this summer, but there there's a ton. Yeah, so Benny Schroeder, uh, last year before he came to Oklahoma, was considered the top European prospect, you know, who could, like, I think was in contention to play college basketball. He was really highly touted. And this is a, another guy. Um, there, there's an inside joke with GW fans right now that um, the second Caputo sees a, a switchy 6'8 forward guard, he's, he's snatching him up because that's all, all the transfers are. They're, they're all kind of a similar build, similar play style. Not necessarily a similar play style, but similar like defensive versatility. And so this is a guy, he's like 6'8". He can handle the ball. He can shoot. Very athletic. Um, he didn't really get a lot of opportunities at Oklahoma because he dealt with some injuries. He had an inopportune uh, case of COVID. And at a certain point, that Oklahoma season just sort of became an experiment. So no one really knew what was going on there. And so he was 
expected to be a significant member of the rotation, but that didn't end up happening. And so I'm really excited to see what he can do at GW. I think as things currently stand, I would probably slot him into a starting lineup for GW just because he has a year of collegiate experience under his belt and his sort of international resume. But I'm really, really excited to see what he can do with the ball in his hands and in a more prominent role because I think he could be a truly special player. Yeah, and so you said you'd slot him into a starting spot right now. Obviously, Bishop and Edwards are going to join him. Do you have a feel for who the other two starters could end up being amongst these young guys? Yes, I do. So um, the coaching staff does not want to have Bishop play point guard. As they shouldn't. Yes, they want him to play shooting guard like he did last year. Or him and Brendan Adams were basically just two point guards. And so they, they want another ball-dominant guard on the floor so that Bishop can has the option to operate off ball. So uh, I know they are actively pursuing uh, a guard in the transfer portal to try and fill that role. But if they are not able to get one, uh, I believe they are comfortable starting a four-star recruit, Jacoy Hutchinson, to start the season. So... I would guess that right now it would be Jacoy Hutchinson at the one, as the roster currently stands, James Bishop at the two, Max Edwards at the three, Benny Schroeder or another transfer uh, from Virginia Tech, Darren Buchanan. I think either one of them will probably start at the four. And then uh, we're still looking for that center. We had a few swings and misses uh, trying to get a big man, but uh, I think we're still looking for that guy. And so I don't believe we have our starting center yet. Uh, I don't think it's going to be Keegan Harvey, unfortunately. I know he's a fan favorite, but I don't think he's going to... I, I don't think GW is in a position to start him right now. And so the center is still coming, but I know the staff loves what they see out of Jaquette Hutchinson and would be very comfortable sort of giving him the keys to the offense. Yeah, and you mentioned that they're still on the recruiting hunt here. And as we start to turn into June... I think there's a few teams that can really help themselves with a nice little late pickup. Like maybe won't have the same impact, but you think about VCU grabbing David Shriver, what was earlier in the calendar year last year, but the way the portal moved very, very, very late in that process. And one of these teams could still make a big impact addition. I think of all 15 GW potentially still has the most to gain with what they're going to be looking for and raising their ceiling. But one guy, and I say this knowing that there's probably a 0% chance it would happen, but we can dream. Think about GW, the history of, of all the different countries with great players there. You said they oh, need I a think point I know guard. Caputo loves big guards. God, wouldn't it just be fun if Mike Sharf jumps went there? Oh, man. if It's not going to happen, but like... No, because, I mean, let's let's play this out. Hypothetically, um, he wants to go to the NBA. Um, the biggest thing that uh, Caputo talked about is that the way in, in just year one for him, he imp- every single player in GW's rotation had a career year statistically. If Mike wants to raise his profile and Caputo will promise him a starting point guard role and 30 minutes a night and... You can just point to guys like, you know, I made James Bishop into what many believe should have been the conference player of the year. I turned Brendan Adams into an all A-10 guy after he averaged eight points a game. Um, you, you can, I, I got Hunter Dean a transfer to LSU. Um, <laughs> you, 
you can I think that he'll need a more more than just one year of doing this, but I think if he keeps this up, you know, keeps building up guys' resumes, um, he made he gave Brendan Adams a professional career. Brendan Adams will be playing high level professional basketball next year, either whether it's the G League or in one uh, a, a good league in Europe, you know. Without Caputo, I don't know if he's doing that. So if he has a few more instances of really building up a guy like that, I would not be shocked if GW becomes a place where players would go to sort of revive their professional aspirations. Yeah, I mean, if Brendan Adams had the wrong coach last year, he was going to be off to play in like the Philippines C-League or something. Because that guy was – his – his last year under Jamie and Christian was a disaster. And there was clearly so much talent there. We talked about it a hundred times on here. Caputo did a better job with him specifically than probably any coach did with any specific player on their roster in the league last year. Yeah. I mean, just that specific improvement. One of the things that he's talked to me about is that uh, it's like in baseball um, when like you have your bullpen and you know this guy's coming in the ninth inning. This guy's going in the eighth inning. This guy's your se- like seventh inning guy. Those guys, even though statistically it might make, might make more sense to like play the traditional closer wherever like the high, highest leverage situation is, like in the heart of the order, it's usually still more effective to just have them know where they're going in. And because of all the injuries that basically forced GW into a six and a half man rotation, kind of in December players knew their roles very early on and there was really no wiggle room. So players knew they were going to get 35, 36 minutes a night that they were going to have the ball in their hands at one, at some point. And like with Brandon Adams, I think that really helped him just knowing that he was the guy. And I think that confidence in him was a big deal in allowing him to be his best self. And we will see if Chris Caputo can do that with any of these other new players with GW. After last year having a a super old roster, now they're going to be one of the youngest teams in college basketball. Chris Caputo trying to revolutionize the way that you've been able to win at GW these past few years. And David, thank you for joining us. Where can everybody find your good work? Uh, You can find me on Twitter right now at David. Uh, what's my handle right now? That was a bad move at David underscore four. Um, I'm still writing for a 10 talk and I would love to write for other places if people want to pay me. So if you are listening and you liked what you heard and you like what you read, uh, hire me. Yeah. Everyone be sure to go give David a good look. He did some great work on the GW student radio station this year. That is it WRGW. It is WRGW. Good. I do remember what it is now. Finally. God knows we were only actually on it at one point, but finally figured it out. David, thank you for joining us. Tyler, Matt, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, we'll close things out here. We just wanted to hit on five takeaways that we had here for the action in the transfer portal over these last few months. Like I just mentioned with David, Transfer portal, it's uh, it's drying up here. Not too many super high-quality players left in there, but still a few guys left to get. But rosters are starting to take shape here. Matt, I don't know. Where do you want to start here? What really stuck out to you that we haven't talked too much about? 
Yeah, I, I feel like, so overall, I, I think you're right. The portal, like, there's still plenty of time for teams to make additions. I, I think if you remember back, what, didn't VCU sign Bones in like July? Like there, there's room for teams to make a splash and it's early enough that you can't go ahead and set any rankings in stone. But there's a few teams. I feel like we focused a lot on St. Joe's over the summer. Duquesne bringing a lot of guys back. VCU, of course, with the new coach. But a couple other teams I wanted to hit on. And first, I think it's St. Bonaventure, a team kind of in the position they were about three years ago, starting out with a young core, bringing back just about everybody. And really the only two rotation players they lost over the offseason, Brett Rumpel, the backup point guard, and Anquan Hill, former rookie of the year in his conference, but didn't play a whole lot last year. At the end of the season. Yeah, it wasn't making a big impact. But St. Bonaventure brings back pretty much the entire rest of their rotation. And I think that's so important for a coach, a system that relies on continuity. A stat that really stuck out to me last year was the second lowest assist rate for St. Bonaventure under the Mark Schmidt era. And this is a team that we we know they pride themselves on moving the ball a lot. They run pretty complicated sets. And I think last year they probably had Daryl Banks shooting a little bit more isolation than they would have wanted, even though he had a good season. But the Bonnies bring in two transfers, Charles Pride from Bryant and Micah Adams-Woods from Cincinnati, both grad transfers. Both, I wouldn't say either one of them is a pure point guard, but each of them average over two assists per game. They shoot the ball well. I think just having a more experienced backcourt and giving Kyrell Luke the chance to shine as really the only true point on the roster going into his second season with the Bonnies. I'm just interested to see what they do. I, I think they're going to have a little bit more flow to the roster. I think Luke in particular, having just more experienced guys around him could be in a position to shine. And I think we'll, we'll see the Bonnies dish out more assists than last year, which was a little bit uncharacteristically a low amount for them. I'm kind of going the other way. And one of my big takeaways, mostly relating to the Bonnies, St. Joe's and Loyola, I think we're going to see some of these teams that bring back a large amount of their rotation that were, in the case of St. Bonaventure, very mediocre last year. In the case of the other two, downright bad for a lot of the season. All three of them bring in pretty talented classes with multiple guys. The two transfers you mentioned for the Bonnies, they also bring in a highly touted freshman big man in Dwayne Thompson, who actually kind of has a pretty natural role on this team, just as Chad Venning's backup. All their other backup bigs from last year are now gone, so he should be able to step right into those minutes immediately. But you look at how Mark Schmidt likes to play, and I, I don't subscribe to this whole, oh, he doesn't want to use his bench thing. That's not true. Mark Schmidt only wants to use the guys that he trusts. And mm -hmm. as you get down to late February, that list gets shorter and shorter than from where it starts at the beginning of the season. And he's not afraid to make changes, big changes with guys' minutes. One of their five starters, because the whole group plus their six-man and Barry Evans all return, one of them is going to be just completely glued to the bench by the end of the season. 
I'm not 100% sure which guy it is, but there's not enough room for these guys plus the three top newcomers. And if I had to guess, and I hate to say it, because he was so fun November, December last year, I think there's a very realistic universe where Kyrell Luke is just out of the rotation by the end of the season. You could see the trust shrinking as the year went on. What's one thing Mark Schmidt doesn't do? He doesn't give more minutes to young players late in the season. Well, he was giving Brett Rumpel plenty of chances to prove himself late in the year. I remember specifically the Duquesne game. He, out of nowhere, after basically not playing in his return from injury, he played almost half the game. And it became very evident by the end of the season that Luke was just not a guy that Schmidt trusts at the same level of a Daryl Banks or a Jan Farrell or a Chad Venning, or even to that point, as much as Moses Flowers. And I think Micah Adams-Woods is going to be their starting point guard pretty early on. Hopefully Luke can improve himself and either stay in that starting spot or be a dynamite sixth man. But I think he's a guy who could fall out. And going around the league, there's a few of those candidates, a few of the young Loyola wings. Like if someone like Jaden Quinn or Jalen Dawson doesn't improve in the offseason, they might find themselves stuck on the end of the bench at the end of the year. Casper Klotschek, if he's not healthy, Billy Lang might not want to deal with that this year. Or my my big hot prediction this season, and it's going to require Billy Lang to really step out on a ledge to do it. I think either Lynn Greer or Cam Brown will be a sixth man in conference play if St. Joe's is a true contender. Because those three just don't make sense together defensively. And if Simmons is as good of an athlete as we heard Matt mentioned earlier, and as we heard Hoops Weiss mention a few weeks ago, that's a guy who might be starting over one of them before season's end. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think you make a good point just about returning players and going into the offseason. Like you always hype up, especially freshmen who had some good moments the year before, but just didn't get consistent playing time didn't make a big impact often but there's only 40 minutes in the game and five spots on the court so not everybody is going to get better and make that jump as an upperclassman so I, I do think that's an important point I just think when it comes to St. Bonaventure I, I think Adams Woods like he looks like a good player on a solid Cincinnati team but he wasn't really the point guard there and I almost look at it as if Brett Rumpel thought his role was going to continue to grow, he would have stayed. And I just don't know if they're left with another real point guard. There was some off-the-court stuff that's very unclear. I might have missed that. Well, Yeah, I don't want to speak about it because I don't remember specifically what happened, but there there was an interaction with police. I don't remember how severe it was, but well, that doesn't that sound came good. Out, that came out a few weeks after the season ended. All right. Well, apologies then. But hey, so you never know. It, it might not have been entirely on the court as to why he left. Well, anyway, what what are in, what's another one of your takeaways though? Because I feel like there there's a lot of other stories in the A10 right now. A lot of a lot of teams that look completely different. So I don't know if that's another one of your takes or not really. Well. There is one team that looks very different stylistically. The only other thing I wanted to throw in when we talk about rotations potentially changing, 
Dayton has like 10 guards now. And yeah, they went from having no yeah. guards to all guards. As we fast. say this, we don't know what Deron Holmes is doing. By the time you're listening, there's a we probably will. Dayton looks like they recruited for a roster that assumed he'd be back. And if he doesn't come back, maybe they will just play four guards. But if they don't, like, would we be completely stunned if one of the guys named Kobe just isn't really playing much by the end of the year? Because they brought in a lot of quality guards this year, and there's just not going to be enough minutes to go around for all of them. I think they might play four guards even if Deron Holmes comes back because do they really have a power forward right now? It's pretty they have a couple centers they have some small forwards who are just gonna have to fake being power forwards yeah i think dayton's rebounding is gonna look quite a bit different next year without Tumani kamara and if they had another big need to fill like whether or not holmes comes back i, I think they're gonna need just someone that can stretch the court a little bit but need somebody who can rebound it somebody all, a little no one besides do. kamara could last year but i digress it does. There was a method to this. It led me into my second takeaway. Duquesne is going to be ginormous this year. We talked about it on our last episode. They brought in the Dramas and Andre Savrastov. They had four different bulky six seven guys who looked like they all would be splitting minutes at power forward. And you looked at the center rotation: two returning sophomores, both. Still kind of unpolished in David Dixon, Julio Barre. Barre also having a bunch of injury issues that he's dealing with. And my prediction was that they were going to do what they did defensively in February and just play Trey Williams at center a bunch. Well, now they bring in Duzan Mohorcic, who is playing at his sixth school. That's right. He played at what I can't tell if it's like a D3 or a junior college or something. Then went to a junior college, Illinois State, Utah, NC State, Duquesne. This dude is a brick house, though. Massive, massive Serbian-born player. 6'10", 225, six and a half rebounds a game last year, shooting 65% in the ACC. I assume that, barring something stunning, he will be their starting center next season. But... They now have seven legitimate big men, and with how thin they are on the wing, literally their only wing backups are Andy Barba, who basically has not played as he's dealt with injuries, and Matush Horonsky, who missed the end of the season with some physical ailments of his own. I think we're going to see them do what LaSalle did last year, play two dramas together as your two forwards, play the, give them some time at the three. Uh, they're the biggest team in the league. Like, I was shocked by how big the Dukes were last year. I think they might be bigger this season. It's an interesting roster. And I, I think for me, I, I mean, they're the biggest team in the league. They're probably the oldest, too. By my count, they've got seven players using their extra year of eligibility right now. And just what great. a difference in culture from two years ago when pretty much the entire team left. I just think it's amazing that last year the Dukes had four freshmen in the rotation, Kareem Rozier, David Dixon, Ronsky, and Hilliel Beret. None of those guys playing big minutes. In the modern 
like present day of college basketball, all four of those guys aren't supposed to come back. That just isn't common. Especially and because they, three of them were basically not playing at the end of the season. So I, I think that's a good sign for the Dukes too, just that they have guys who want to be there who have bought in and are all going to be fighting for a bigger role. So we'll see if, I mean, they do lose a couple guards, so we'll see how that, that balance works and if they're going to be too big or not. But the experience is there, and maybe that can lead to a great season. It's definitely got to be the most experienced team Dan Brod has had here, at yeah. least. And by the way, their only two point guards are their two youngest guys. By age, yes, that, so. that has to be a lot of trust that he didn't go out and get a veteran option, someone like a Tevin Brewer. Yeah, well, we've talked about that. This was him basically saying that Rozier is the guy, and they're going to throw a young dude behind him to soak up the backup minutes. But uh, the second half of that is VCU's huge too. And you want to talk about a stylistic difference. After the ending years of Mike Rhodes, Vince Williams playing the four and then actually having a true four in Brendan Johns last year. Now they bring back the two super tall, super skinny centers with Lawall and Fermin, but they add Roosevelt Wheeler. They add in the uh, the Cal transfer, whose name I don't want to get wrong, but it's like Koye Koye. They bring in Barstow from Utah State. This team's going to be pretty tall themselves. They should. Well, do you have any more VCU takes? Because I do have a, another team with some concerns in the front court I'd like to address. No, and okay, I, bring it over there. Well, so first off, I, I've seen some early preseason rankings with St. Louis in the pillow fight. Let's just cut that out. I mean, well, I they know... They did just lose CJ Nolan like an hour before we started recording. Oh my god, is that... Where did he go? He just got there. He just went back in the portal. Wow. All right. Well, you know, I'm still going to say I don't think St. Louis is going to be that bad. Travis Ford just simply hasn't coached bad teams, with the exception of his first year at St. Louis, recovering from the Jim Cruz era. And I think they do bring enough back in the backcourt. I mean, Gibson Jimerson is going to have a great season, I think. The front court, though, is another story. And right now, I see the Billikens with three bigs. Two of them international freshmen, seven foot one Bruce Zhang out of China, Steph Van Bussels, and then Bradley Azirwio from Georgetown, who averaged four points there last year. And I'm assuming he'll need to sit out a year because he's on his third school, originally coming over from LSU. That's just not a lot of experience, and it's such a stark contrast from having Francis Okoro and Jake Forrester last year, two fifth-year seniors manning down the five spot. They also lost Momo Cisse, who was a pretty promising freshman who got minutes when the other two guys were in foul trouble. So the Bilbikins have pretty much turned over their entire front court. And while I think there's some potential... The center position is just such a project for this team, and that's really, I think, going to make or break how far they can go. I, I still think the backcourt's going to be solid, and I think this team always has a fairly high floor, but unless one of these guys really steps up, I, I think it limits where the Billikens can go this season. 
Yeah, two things I want to throw in. First of all, it's uh, Kwani Kwani going to VCU. This is why you write notes of difficult names of newcomers, because I was way off there. Second of all, it's been such a bad offseason for St. Louis that I had to go hit Twitter while you were talking because there was a small part of my brain that thought that Bruce Sang decommitted. No, they had another center that's who how, decommitted. Yeah, that's how bad this has gotten. <laughs> oh, it's not great. And I'm just really interested, though. I mean, taking out those guys, it's pretty much just Tim Dolger coming from, I believe, it's always it's Tulsa or Tulane. I always get them confused. I don't have it in front of me. But he's like a 6'7 wing and pretty much the next tallest guy on the roster. So definitely hasn't been a great offseason. And you have to wonder if they're going to continue looking for options in the front court. Yeah, they it this is just another team where it feels like they're not quite done like GW. Like they just need guys all over the place. And I agree with you. I almost don't want to put them in the pillow fight off reputation, but when I look at that roster, I I, I gotta think long and hard about it right now. Yeah. Well we'll see. I, I still have trust. Like, I, I think I've made my opinion pretty clear. I usually don't trust St. Louis to win the conference or to reach the heights that some people might expect. But I also just feel confident that Travis Ford, he's recruited well enough. I think they do find a missing piece somewhere in the next month or two. And I think that gets them to 500 in the league. It just compared to some of these other teams, like whether it's Loyola, St. Joe's, UMass, teams that have struggled and maybe they're bringing in more attractive names, but just teams that haven't had quite as much success, at least last year. I guess it's not fair to throw Loyola in when they went to the tournament two years ago. But as far as I know, like that didn't even happen. They weren't in the A-10. I wasn't paying attention. All right, we'll carry it on to my last one here. And that is the, for better or for worse, we're going to learn in the next few years which one it is. Richmond's kind of just like walking to the beat of their own drum in the transfer portal. For the most part, you can separate a lot of the transfers that come into the A-10 in two buckets. You have pedigree or potential. Your pedigree guys, those highly rated recruits at power five schools that things just don't work out there year one, year two make their way down to the A-10. You think Jordan Cyber, Ibby Watson, Zeb Jackson, Roosevelt Wheeler. A, a lot of those guys do end up at Dayton or VCU, but like C.J. Nolan, had he stayed at St. Louis, would have been a perfect example of this. Or you go for guys with pedigree, or, or sorry, guys with production. And that's where you see like Duquesne frequently target. These guys who've been incredibly good at smaller schools, whether it's Brewer Grant last year, or Savrastov this year. These guys who are just dominant at lower levels, and you see a skill set that you think could translate up to the A-10. Fordham has done both. They went and got pedigree with Khalid Moore last year. This year, they go get the they go get Jafet Medor from UTSA, who was great down in Conference USA. They go get Rivera, Patriot League Rookie of the Year. These are guys who produced at these lower levels richmond last year we saw take chances on a pair of basically role players in a lower conference going down into the socon getting jason roach and isaiah bigelow 
They go get Neil Quinn, who was a production guy in his own right, albeit in an even lower conference than that. And I'd say that all of those guys were good players in the role that they were asked to fill. But right now, Richmond needs more than that. With Tyler Burton leaving, they need stars. They need guys who can carry this team. And you see what they did this year? They go dip back into the SoCon again, grabbing a grad transfer in Jordan King, who I assume will be their starting point guard. And then their only other transfer, Delani Hunt, a third-team all-conference guy who was 11 points a game at Wagner last year in what was pretty much without a doubt the worst league in in Division I college basketball. Although, as I say this, there's multiple guys honored in that conference who are coming to the A-10 now. But, yeah, I mean, Richmond's kind of just picking off a bunch of guys that – I'm not sure had a lot of other interest at this level and can't really say that they went wrong with a guy like Bigelow. He produced for them. He's clearly an a 10 player, but I do wonder, is this a result of them not being able to get higher sought after guys or is Chris Mooney just being kind of particular with who he wants to grab? I don't know, but I am just a little bit worried because we don't see a whole lot. I mean, Richmond has two freshmen on their roster right now. They just have never been a team that's gotten most of their successful players through the transfer portal. They've had a lot of homegrown talent. I mean, even last year, like the big name is Tyler Burton, who is not using his fifth year at Richmond is and is going to transfer elsewhere, elsewhere. But Andre Gustafson and Matt Grace won a ton of games at Richmond. Those guys are gone. And I feel like a staple under Mooney has been guys improving year over year. Now they're going with a little bit of a different approach and they kind of had to at the point guard spot with Jason Nelson moving on to VCU. So it's going to be interesting for sure, but I just, I'm concerned with such a, a unique system that they have. How long will it take? Even with an experienced point guard like Jordan King, how quickly does he pick things up? Yeah, it's it's going to be tough, but you got to land guys in the transfer portal to win at this point. And long term, we're actually going to get to see one of the great test cases of whether that's an end all be all with Davidson. And that's a discussion for a different day. That might be a whole pods worth discussion of how Davidson is going to try to navigate this era because they just have challenges in place that the other schools don't with no grad school and really high academic standards for athletes. But even so, the one transfer they went and got is an extremely high pedigree guy with Brizzy. And Matt McKillop probably it's, I would think, knows that he can really only get one or two transfers a year. The one he grabbed this season certainly set off some bells in everyone's heads to look out for him the next year. And meanwhile, Richmond, I'm not exactly given us much to be excited about. Yeah, I really, I, I don't want to spoil anything or get too down this early in the off season, but just looking around the league, I, I feel like every team has something going for them where I can get excited and convince myself they, they have the chance to win seven or eight games in the league. And I'm just not quite feeling that with Richmond yet. So 
there's still time. Maybe they, they fill some more holes and get another big time player that can contribute right away. But right now they just, they lose a lot and they weren't that great to begin with. Yeah. And like even Rhode Island were at this point in the year, I just really don't like the transfer class they brought in, but you can spin it. You can find ways to believe that that transfer class is going to work out. Richmond, there's just not the high upside guys that a lot of these other lower level rosters have been able to bring in. And also as great as Chris Mooney is, he ain't Fran Dunphy. He's not going to be able to work a LaSalle miracle. Yeah. LaSalle sneakily brought back almost everybody except for the dramas. I still like and Decorah. They didn't fill a ton of spots and who knows how they're going to recruit the rest of the way, but we just know they're going to win. They're somehow going to win like seven games in the league. I mean, their two best players are back, so it's not that ridiculous. Yeah. All right. Any other takeaways as we wrap up the month of May and finally get to wake up in a couple days? Yeah, uh, John Rothstein's been on that long, long, long nap. His phone uh, sending out all of those draft withdrawal tweets. And coming out of hibernation here soon. We're not hibernating over here at the three-bid league. We took a little bit of a break there. That'll happen from time to time in the summer. Sometimes we'll be we'll be gone for three weeks. Sometimes we might be gone for a few days. So keep an eye out. Hopefully we will continue to bring you some great guests as the summer comes on. Another big thank you to both Matt and David coming on talking St. Joe's and GW with us. Be sure to go follow those guys on Twitter and their respective websites, Hawk Hill Hardwood and A10 Talk. Be sure to give us five stars on iTunes. Leave a comment if you enjoyed the show. And be sure to keep an eye out. We will continue to bring you Plenty of podcast content as the summer goes along.